If you'll take your Bibles and turn back to that passage in Job chapter 1 that we read a little earlier. If you've been here in the last few weeks, we've been trying to exegete a biblical principle. You become like what you worship, either for ruin or for restoration. So far, we've seen two examples of that, one in Psalm 115 and 135. And the phrase that was brought out there is those who make them, meaning idols, are like them. And we've seen how that works even more pointedly. Uh, last week, we turned to Jeremiah chapter 2, and the principle sounded like this. And they went after emptiness, meaning empty idols, and became empty. And so today... Because we've gone over these principles in two negative examples, we want to turn to a positive one, and we want to look at the life of Job in our series. It's the beginning of our series as far as our theme this year, Worship Matters, goes, and we have said that worship matters, and it does, because what you revere, you resemble, and that is absolutely important for us and for our children Um, Job shows us this principle that it not only works for negatively against idols, but it also works positively for those who desire to be like God. In fact, we're going to see in the text today that Job was like God. Job revered God and became like God. And that first indication of that is a phrase, if you look, it is recorded for us in chapter 1 and verse 8, but a second time also in chapter 2 and verse 3, and it's this phrase talking about Job. In fact, God is talking to Satan about Job. And we might say in our vernacular today, he's bragging on him. And God says, when it comes to Job, there is none like him on the earth. Now that phrase, none like him, is quite prevalent in the Old Testament. It's used to describe numerous kings. Solomon, because he didn't have anyone who had, there was no one who had wisdom like him. It was used of Saul because Saul was taller, head and, it said, uh, head and shoulders taller than everybody else. There was none like him as far as stature. It was used of Hezekiah, and it says there were none like him or before him who trusted in the Lord. It was used of Josiah also, and it says there was no one like him or before him who turned in his heart to the Lord. But in all those instances, those are, that phrase is used to contrast people with other people, and specifically kings. But in this case, it's different. It says there are none like him in all the earth. And it's different in this way because that exact phrase, none like him in all the earth, is only found one other place in the entire Bible outside of the two references in Job that I just read for you. And it's in Exodus chapter 9, in verse 14. And God is going to deliver his people out of Egyptian bondage, and he's going to do it with supernatural plagues. That story you're probably familiar with. And here's why he tells Moses, here's why I'm going to do it this way. He says, because I want Pharaoh to know this when it's all said and done, God says, that there is none like me in all the earth. The only person who gets that phrase that describes God to also describe them is Job. Job was like God in so many ways. 
One in particular our text reveals to us, and it's the description that, again, God gives to Satan about him. And he says, you know what my servant Job is like? He is blameless. He is complete. He's got the whole package, God would say, just like I do. In fact, the only other time I should say that God has this description given to him is Deuteronomy 32 and 4. God is blameless. So Job is, in your mind, put it in your mind this way, God is the, Job is the most godlike worshiper on the planet in his day. Now, the word that he uses most prevalently and uh, dominantly in this passage to describe that is in chapter 1, verse 1, 8, 9, chapter 2, and verse 3, when he says, Job fears God. So let's put it together. Job revered God, and therefore he started to resemble God. Before we go any further, let me just set this in place and give you a little framework for what we're going to talk about today. If you know anything about Job, you'll know that in the Bible, it's set in what's called wisdom literature. It is near Proverbs and Psalms and Ecclesiastes. These are wisdom literature. And it's going to show today whose wisdom that Job is going to use or or whose wisdom is going to prevail in this scene. In this scene, there's two of them, one in each chapter. It keeps going back and forth between what's going on on earth and what's going on in heaven. And so we get the first contrast. If you look in your text again, this is the part we started to read in verse 6. It says, now there was a day. Now if you take notes, draw a line from chapter 1, verse 6, to chapter 1, verse 13, because they are the exact identical phrase. Both of them start the paragraph with the phrase, now there was a day. See, there are things going on that Job doesn't know about. Things going on on earth, but invisible things going on in heaven that he doesn't know about. And God lets us, the readers, in on it. And he gives us a a little window into the royal courtroom of heaven on a day when God's chamber, his council chamber, is filled with all the sons of God, all the angels he's created that he allows to come in when he makes decisions and give advice. And on that day, the Hasatan is there. The Hasatan is the word Hebrew for accuser, our adversary. We call him and translate it Satan. And it's a very unique, and I think you might agree the first time you read it, it's almost a little disturbing conversation between God and Satan as they go back and forth. And in chapter 1, verse 8, God begins to ask Satan this question. Have you... Literally, not considered, although our text says that, have you set your heart on my servant Job? Now, all of us read that and think, well, I I don't want, perhaps I don't want God to love me quite that much. I want to be like him, but I don't know if I want him to love me, that he's going to offer me up as the prime example for Satan to consider, but he does. He's really saying, hey, Satan, You see this guy? Look at Job. Have you thought about him? Have you put it considered in your heart that this is guy who he reveres me? Look at him. He worships me and he is becoming like me. There's not anyone like him. He is like me like nobody else. See, God is impressed with Job, kind of like a father wants to brag on his son, so much so that he even tells Satan that Job is my servant. Now, that is a title in the Old Testament that is re- 
as restricted to just a very few prominent people. Abraham has it. Moses is called that by God. David is called that. And Job is called that. Are you getting the idea about how much Job is really like God? I mean, he is one of a kind. Now, the Bible says in this conversation that Satan has been walking around the planet. He's been looking for people that he should consider. Now, God says you should consider Job. There's no one like him. He's just like me. Satan has been walking around, and when God asks him, he doesn't mention Job's name. But for, for Satan, Job isn't that impressive. And here's the answer. Here's the reason why. Because the Satan, he has a theory about Job's worship. And here's the theory, that Job worships you on the outside, but he doesn't really worship you on the inside. And here's the accuser's accusation of Job, and it comes in the form of a question, verse 9. Do you see it? Read it with me. Does Job fear God for no reason? The Hebrew word means without compensation, In other words, you think he's doing this, not expecting anything back? The word is translated in vain, without a cause, for nothing. And often that phrase is some sort of payment is meant by it. You see what Satan's saying? He says, okay, God, I admit it. Job worships you on the outside. But what you don't know about him is he's different on the inside. The only reason he's so devoted to you And so faithful to you is because of all the things that he gets from you. See, we would say today, Job worships God because he wants something from God. We would say, Job's looking about what's in it for me. (laughs) Does Job fear and worship God for nothing or for something? Hold on a minute. Let me say that again. Do you worship God For something or for nothing? Do you worship God for his gifts or do you worship God gratis, for free? See, God wants to know the why of Job's worship and he brought you here this morning because God wants to to know the why of your worship. Now, in America today, in American Christianity, by and large, across our country, American Christians are obsessed with the how of worship. We're obsessed with the worship music, and it has to be this style and really loud in a concert, and you have to turn the lights on and blow the fog into the auditorium. See, it has to be the right atmosphere, and we have to have experience, and we judge whether we had a good service today and how we feel when we left. And it really stoke up my feelings and my emotions, not because emotions are wrong by any stretch. And we're looking for the music and the atmosphere and the experience and the quality of facilities. And we become people who are experts in the externals. And God, perhaps more than any other time in history, wants to know, is there more to your worship than just that? Will you be obsessed with the why of worship? There's the old worship chorus. You remember it? It goes like this. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. What is that? Here's what the song says. It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. And then the apology follows. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. What's the thing? 
all about me? I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. Why? Because it's all about you. And i got to keep telling myself, because you know what our natural propensity is? Is to make worship all about me. The song goes on to say this, I'll bring you more than a song. That's hard for us today in the climate in which we live in Christianity because the song is really what it's all about. But the song says, I'm going to bring you more than a song. Why? Because you require more than a song. You, listen to the words, you search much deeper within than the way things appear. See, God sees below the surface of our external worship. He does. He says, you're looking into my heart. You see what Satan is telling God? He says this, you know what you don't know about Job, God? It's all about him, not you. See, what you need to do, God, is you need to look beyond the way things appear in Job's life. God, what you really need to do is step back and take a look into Job's heart, and you won't be impressed. So we ask ourselves this morning, do we have a heart of worship? If God looked much deeper within your life this morning, if you looked beyond and below the things that, the way things appear, what would he find? The worship that you give him this morning, is it the worship that you give him all week long? Do you find your joy and your happiness in all that he is for you in Jesus? See, in order to find the true answer to Satan's question, Satan says, let me show you what I mean. Let me prove it to you. Let me give Job a worship test. I'll show you that he's everything on the outside, but he's nothing on the inside. Let me show you, Satan would say, let me show you the why of Job's worship. So in verses 13 through 22 of our text, part of that we did not read, Satan is going to question and he is going to test Listen, the depth, the sincerity, and the resilience of Job's relationship with God. Because here's what he's out for Job. Here's what he's out to do as he accuses him. And here's what he's out to do in your life. He wants to expose your hollowness. He wants to prove to God that so-and-so, your name included, comes to church and raises their hand and sings the songs and gets all feely about it, but all week long, they pretty much have nothing to do with you. God, they are full on the outside, but empty on the inside. And God, here's what Satan says. I want to show you just how hollow they really are. He wants to show you that Job's worship is based on and built on externals, not internals. And the fact that he is becoming like you, it's only skin deep, God, so don't get too excited. Satan's not done, though. He's not there just to accuse Job. Did you notice? He's also there to accuse God. And here's what he says to God. You know what? Part of what Job is like is your fault. He says, God, you've been overindulgent, meaning you've given Job practically everything he ever wanted. And you're overprotective because you put all the good stuff into his life and you kept all the bad stuff out of his life. And the Bible says you even built a hedge. We would say today, you put a fence around his life and nothing bad can get in, including me. But if you ever let the gate open just for a minute, I'll show you what he's really all about. And this is how the structure goes. The test looks like this. All throughout chapter 1 and even into chapter 2, 
there's this back and forth, this wordplay on these two words, blessing and cursing. Chapter 1, verse 5, Job sacrificed all the time for his children because here's what his fear was, that his children would curse God in their heart. Chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 uses both terms at the same time. Satan's accusing that God, see, you bless the work of his hands, but if you don't bless the work of his hands, he will curse you. He will curse you to your faith. 1 Kings 21 verse 10 says, if you curse God, you are going to die the death penalty. That's how serious that they're talking here. At the end of our text, it says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. End of chapter 2, it says that you should curse, Job's wife tells him, just curse God and die. See, that's the question this morning, isn't it? If you want to ask a question that reveals where your true heart of worship is or is not, ask yourself, like God asked through Satan, Job, Will Job keep blessing God when God doesn't keep blessing Job? Will God still be Job's everything when God has reduced him to nothing? Will you? All the things that we enjoy in America, if it was all taken away, what kind of Christian would you be? There was a day, you see, and the day that was taking place when God and Satan were talking, they're connected to the day here. Because every single day of our lives are tests of where our worship really is. To see what the why of our worship is all about. See, Job was living the dream. (laughs) He had 10 children, the number of completion. He had animals and flocks, which also stand for his finances. The guy was rich. In fact, the Bible says there are four uh, commendations of him. And one of them is, there is not anyone like him in all of the East. In that whole part of the world, there was no one like him. He was famous. He was rich. He was godly. He had a great family. He had it all. He was living the dream. And that dream was about to become a nightmare. What a difference a day may bring, right? It was a day that Job would like to forget, but he never would. Because that day would be the day, that 24-hour day would be the day that God allowed Satan to bring four back-to-back disasters. Four simultaneous, almost, tragedies that would totally rock his world If you read the text, starting in verse 13, you'll find that there is a repeated phrase. And here's the text. And here's why I bring it out. And I want you, listen, we're not just listening to truth today. I want you to feel this. And perhaps you have already felt it because you've experienced something like it. There are four disasters. After the first one is mentioned, the repeated phrase that introduces the next three is this. And while he was still speaking, it's in verse 16, 17, and 18. Here's what you're supposed to feel. That there's a guy who comes and reports that the Sabians have come and wiped out all your, your animals and now you can't make a living. And all of the finances and all the investments and all the things that you've built all for all of these years, gone. 
And that guy can hardly have finished the sentence and another messenger who's out of breath has come in and he tells them that not only that has happened, but another raid take place and you have lost not just that part of your wealth, but you have lost it all. And a third one comes and, and then he tells them, listen, that this happened and the wind came and, and then the fire fell down from heaven and devoured everything you own. And then the last one, again, while the words of the other messenger are still in his mouth, the guy says, in the house that all your children were in while they were having a party, it got hit by a tornado and every one of your children have died. Can you imagine? There's no chance for Job to even catch his breath. There's no way that he can even go through in his mind all that he's ha- is happening to it. It's overwhelming. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt God, I don't know if I can do this again. People who die during COVID, you lose your job, your marriage is on the rocks, your kids are rebellious, and you go, God, give me a break. Job would have loved to have a break, but he didn't get one. Two explanations, two of those things, I should say, have obvious explanations because the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans are known enemies, and so it wouldn't have been a complete shock that they would come and do things awful to Job. But when the, it says the fire of God from heaven, which we might interpret as lightning, when God sends lightning and destroys things, and then God sends a tornado and wipes all of his family out and his children out, he doesn't know what to say about those. Imagine 10 funerals in one day. Imagine back then digging 10 fresh graves and putting all your children in them. Isn't it what we say? No parent should have to bury a child. Imagine doing 10 of them. That's what Job was feeling. Everything and everyone in his life that mattered is gone in one day. I don't know if you've ever read the children's book. I've referred to it before. Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Alexander wakes up and he forgot to put the gum that was in his mouth while he was going to bed on the table and it ends up in his hair when he wakes up. That's how he starts his day. Then he gets out of bed and trips on his brother's skateboard who left it out and falls and hurts himself. In the bathroom, because his knee hurts, he's paying too much attention until he drops by accident his best sweater that he was going to wear in the toilet. His brothers at the, at the breakfast table open their boxes of cereal and they both get prizes. He opens his, gets nothing. He goes to school, he turns in his project and he gets an F on it because it was the Invisible Castle project, which was a blank sheet of paper. He goes out to recess hoping things will get better in his day and his best friend comes up on him and says, I don't want to be your best friend anymore, I only want to be your third best friend. He thinks, well, I'll just drown out my sorrows and my food. And he opens his lunch and his mom forgot to put the dessert in it. On and on and on it goes. After school is over, he gets in the car and goes to the dentist's office and he's got cavities. And the whole story is on and on and on. How just one thing after another. And eventually throughout the entire little book, every time something comes up, he thinks, oh, if I could only move to Australia. (laughs) 
Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking about one after another. You're thinking about your terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days. Thinking about Australia much lately? See, put your name in it. What about your terrible day, the terrible losses, the loss of loved ones and family members? How about the horrible diagnosis from the doctor and the uncertainty that you feel every day because you don't know really where this whole thing medically is going? The no good, very bad relational breakdown between you and your spouse. After so many years of marriage, who would have thought that it would come like this or end like this? Thinking about Australia sounds pretty good about this point. The question in what Job's life asks us and what a true worshiper of God who's becoming like him is, is how will you respond to the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days? And the only way that you can do it right is if you are worshiping God and becoming like him and using that wisdom I talked about a little earlier. See, because if you worship God and you're becoming like him, Here's what will result in. You will use his wisdom in those terrible, horrible days. But if you're worshiping idols, if you're worshiping things that aren't even truly God, you will respond very differently to the very horrible, bad days because you'll be using a completely different wisdom. And that's the world's wisdom. And that's why the book of Job, basically when it comes down to it, is a wisdom debate. Because everyone who appears in this story thinks that their wisdom is the right way to live their lives. There is God's wisdom, there is Job's wisdom, there is his wife's wisdom, there's his three friends' wisdom, and they all have different sources other than Job and God. Job's wife says, Are you still holding on to, and the Greek word, I mean, the Hebrew word says strong. Are you still strong in your integrity? Are you kidding? Why do you have to stay devoted and godly? Look what God has done to you. If he's cursing you, you should curse him back. That's her wisdom. (laughs) Job's friends basically say, the only option of you, the only response can you have to all this suffering is you must be a horrible person, and you've been a hypocrite and a phony and a fake your whole life, so get with it. I tell you this, your wisdom reveals your worship. It shows the why of what you're really all about. See, man's wisdom today in your terrible, horrible, no good day would tell you to say this. Here's how you should respond. Well, see, I'm just a victim. And then we start griping and complaining and we put all the blame on people that we can blame for how they're treating us. And we start to tell ourselves in our souls, we say, I don't really deserve this. And then you become ruled by your finger f- feelings and then the anger sets in and the bitterness sets in and your world begins to be warped and shrink down to in your problems. All you can see is how you feel and your pain and you have no room for God, no room for anyone else, much less worship or service. And then you stop coming to church very often and you stop doing and serving and giving because you're not really worshiping God and you're using the wrong wisdom See, Job worked through his very bad day, and he still worshiped God. You know why? Because worshiping God gives you a different kind of wisdom. See, 1 Timothy 1.17 says, there is only one true wise God, and he's in heaven. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around this truth, that God gives four stellar commendations of Job 
But you know how it ends in chapter one? Four unbelievable lamentations by Job. It says in verses 20 and 21, look at the text. Job tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, admitting that he is just dirt. Listen, and he worshiped. Do you see that? Oh, see, that's when you know that you are becoming like God. When you are starting to emulate all the integrity and character and heart of God. See, God had built a fence around Job and his family, but the very bad day, for the first time, he opened the gate and let Satan in Job's backyard. What would happen to you this week if God opened the gate to your backyard? Job's wife, she would say, if he opens the gate to the backyard and seems to be cursing me, I'm just going to curse him back. But not Job. He doesn't curse God back. He blesses him. Do you see what it says? Here's what Job would say. The Lord builds fences and the Lord opens gates. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Can you say that? Have you been able to say that? See, verse 21 is the hinge, isn't it? It's what it's all built on. It's the conclusion. It's the real display of the why of your worship. Not only for Job, but for us. But see, The Lord gave and the Lord takes away that nasty little conjunction. It's hard, isn't it? Because the whole verse is wrapped in the Lord title three times. See, the only way you can have an and in your life and see the wisdom of and and the worship of and is if you submit to God's sovereignty. See, he's Lord of your story, not you. That he's in control of everything in your life, not you, not even Satan. It's hard, isn't it, to submit to God, not when the, the gifts are given, but when the griefs are given. But wisdom that comes from worshiping God and becoming like him, it allows us the ability like it did Job, listen, to live on both sides of the conjunction. See, Job said, the Lord gave, let me say it to you, 21st century, the Lord gave me a house and a car and health and a job and money in the bank and food in the refrigerator and I go on vacations and I have, you know, listen, not that my life is perfect, but I, see, the Lord gives, blessed be his name. That's one side of the conjunction. But on the other side of and, and the Lord takes away. Mm. But Job He can say, blessed be the name of the Lord on both sides of the conjunction. Can you? Corey ten Boom was a Dutch Christian in the Netherlands. And during World War II, she hid Jewish people from the Nazis. Later, a book about her life or that she wrote was called The Hiding Place. Perhaps you've read it. Eventually, because she got caught hiding Jewish people and protecting them, she was put with her sister Betsy in a prison camp for Jews called Ravensbrook. They went through so many things together there, and they were so close, and having their sisters together there allowed them to get through so many horrible things. And what actually broke Corey Tim Boom's heart the most was just a few weeks after all the years in there, a few weeks before they would be liberated by the American forces, 
her sister Betsy died. It was hard for her to get over it. The Lord had taken away so many things from her when she had tried to serve him. And now he had taken her sister too. Looking back on it, she would write these words of wisdom. Hold everything in your hands loosely. Otherwise, it hurts when God pries your fingers off of them. Oh, even her sister, she says, hold it loosely. Hold it loosely because even she is not as valuable to you as the Lord. Abraham, and I'll close. Abraham is ascending Mount Moriah and he is going to be asked by God to do something that he never thought God would ask. He waited so long for a son. And now God says, I want you to sacrifice that son. So he knows God is the Lord and he obeys. He submits to the sovereignty. He doesn't fully grasp the wisdom. But see, here's what the Bible says. Abraham fears God. He worships him. And now we're going to find out why does Abraham worship him? He ties his son on the altar, who was no small child, by the way. He was probably at least 18 or 20 years old. He is the heir that God promised him. He is the only seed that he will get from God. And he knows it. And have bound his son to the altar, he brings the knife up to slit his throat as a sacrifice would be done. And in Genesis 22 and verse 12, the Bible says that God stops him by repeating his name, Abraham, Abraham. And he says, Lord, listen, and here's what God says to him on that day. That was his terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. God says, you don't have to do this because now I know that you fear God. What do you mean? Now I know God who knows everything, God who is omniscient, the God who looks into our minds and hearts deeper than the surface. He knows Abraham has a heart of worship. What does he mean? Now I know. Here's what we know about God. God loves the public display of his infinite value and worth by our preferential choices for his glory. He loves it. And he allows Job's and he allows Abraham's and he allows Christians at Faith Baptist Church in the 21st century to be put into situations where you prove to everyone, including Satan and himself, that your why of worship is none other than just simply who God is. Now I know that you fear God. Listen, here's what God says. Because you have not withheld your son. Listen to the words. Your son, your only son from me. The thing that's dearest to your life, the thing that is in the center of your heart, here's what Abraham learns. Hold it loosely because God will perhaps use it to figure out and help you see and others around you that even this he is better than in your life. See, what's the why of your worship today? Why do you worship God? Where is the conjunction in your life? Is it that the conjunction is in the wrong place where you say, well, I worship God and 
God in money, God in success, God in family, God in my child, God in my health. How about God in my marriage, my my health, my education, my sports, my career, God and. See, he will not be the utilitarian God, Tozer says. He will not allow you to use him and worship him so that you can get what you want from him. That's not how it works. The conjunction goes where Job put it. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the true why of worship. So let me ask you one more time. Where is your heart of worship? As God looks deeper than the way things appear in your life, when he looks at your bank account, when he looks at your time and your calendar, where he looks at your devotion and where you are in the morning and where you are at night and what you're doing when no one's looking, can I tell you this? Where is the conjunction for you? Because worship matters. And you know why it matters? Because when you worship, your why is showing. Where's yours? Let's pray. Father, we want to have a heart of worship like Job, like Abraham, like so many saints in the Bible. We don't want people to believe or Satan to be able to prove that when we come to church that this is all our worship really consists of and that the rest of the week is not about you, it's about us. We want you to know today, we want you to know clearly that we do not worship you because of what you give. We are thankful for all of it. We are appreciative of all of it. It is not why we worship you. We worship you because you are God, period. And if, Lord, you take away everything, the reality is we still have everything because we have you. Oh, that that would be true in our hearts. Oh, Lord, that you might teach us graciously to hold everything loosely. That you wouldn't have to pry our fingers off of things because our hands are holding on to you. May that truth by your grace and Holy Spirit be worked into our hearts today that we might have the true why of worship. In your name we pray, amen.